Hello and welcome along again to the Northern Agenda podcast with me, Rob Parsons. I'm a political journalist living and working in Leeds, but rather than focusing on who's up and who's down in Westminster Village, I'm much more interested in the political stories you don't always hear on the news, the ones that really matter to the 15 million people that live in the north of England. If that sounds of interest, you might want to consider signing up to my daily politics newsletter called The Northern Agenda, which has news and analysis about big topics like transport, levelling up and the North-South divide on health. But most importantly, it's from the North and about the North. We're closing in on the local elections as this podcast goes out. There's just a few days to go. And this week, I'm joined by an expert who can tell us which contests in the North are worth watching and perhaps crucially, why we should even bother voting in the first place. Listen out for my chat with Jonathan Carr-West of the Local Government Information Unit a little later. What I always say at this time of year is, you know, well, just whatever you do, just do vote in your local election. It's not an opinion poll. It's not just about, you know, whether you think Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer should be, should be prime minister. It's about bread and butter, life and death issues in your community and who makes those decisions. But there's plenty of other stories to talk about in the North this week. And I'm very pleased to be joined by friend of the podcast, Edna Robinson. Edna's held several chief executive positions within the NHS and been a special advisor to the government's community secretary, but is now chair of the People's Powerhouse, a movement trying to make change happen in the North. Uh, Edna, hello. How, how are you doing? I'm good, Rob. Great to see you. Good to see you two virtually over our over our podcasting screen. Now, there's a lot, a lot, to, a lot to get through, and I thought I'd start with one that is very much in your in your wheelhouse as someone with a lot of uh, experience uh, in in the health sector. There's a big report out uh, today about the North South divide on health. It's by an organisation called Health Equity North which describes itself as a virtual institute focused on place-based solutions to public health problems. And it's got a report out which makes pretty grim reading. The top and bottom of it is that uh, in the North, people are living shorter and harder lives than those in other parts of the country. The gap is getting wider. People in the North East especially have have the lowest average life expectancy in the UK. And that is having a knock-on effect onto economic productivity, higher rates of people whose lives are limited uh, by a disability uh, and so are economically inactive as a result. Now, I think for people who are interested in levelling up and this kind of thing, these results probably won't be a huge surprise. I think it's been well documented that the sort of north-south divide on health outcomes. But, I mean, with that being the case, do, do do you think we're getting any closer at all to tackling the sort of underlying issues behind these statistics? Because it's quite a multifaceted problem, isn't it? We kind of know what the problem is. Are we any closer to actually solving it in your in your view? Um, well, first of all, I'll just say, Rob, I think it's another very sad uh, set of statistics. And I think the word that jumped out for me most was the word living harder lives as well as shorter. And I think there's a real at moment to capture there that actually this this sense of people living a life where they're under pressure and there's a lot of uncertainty etc is is really exhausting and really saps people of energy of energy of ambition energy of vision uh, energy of taking risks or um, even seeking out very positive experiences so uh, I think you know we 
Yes, we do know the answers, don't we? And uh, we, the data is repetitive. It's depressing to read. Uh, it's nothing new. Uh, it maybe gets labelled in different ways at different times. Um, but it, the will isn't there to do things at scale. And also, I really don't think that we actually have understood fully the losses that many of the northern communities faced for so long when the whole... It, industrial infrastructure fell apart almost in so many places. So that sense of pride and identity at many of the manufacturing worlds where people may not have had big wages, but there was a really strong sense of both place identity and also being constructive and productive, um, often compensated for the wages. It also created its own social networks where people through apprenticeships and other things had a very clear and honest way of going through uh, improvements and promotions and gaining new skills. So they were doing all of those things in a piecemeal kind of way now. So no one would argue that there aren't apprenticeships or there aren't good opportunities for people who are struggling to get into work. But we've still got a whole thing about that infrastructure of people for whom life is very insecure and it's insecure in terms of the money the wages that they're they're receiving it's insecure in terms of their housing and where they live and that may no longer be as taken for granted in a way that it was it's insecure in terms of their identity where it might be about people's uh, identity of a place of origin a different place of origin so we've got a whole raft of insecurities coming together that actually mean that people are still not able to take the opportunities when they come. But they're not institutionalised, those opportunities. They're ad hoc. There might be a short-term scheme with this. There might be something going on in another community that isn't going on in their community. So for me, there's a, there isn't the energy or commitment from government to actually really, really address the fundamentals, which is about people's sense of security and identity in their contribution to their own society. In your view, that, that's what has to come first. Because I guess, I guess a lot of people, perhaps on the conservative side, would say the reason why we're continuing to see these health inequalities and places in the north being at the wrong end of league tables on things like poverty and stuff like that is because of the uh, you know the lack of economic productivity in these areas which means that people aren't earning so much and there's a correlation isn't there between sort of uh, economic wealth and and health and so I guess their answer is if we can bring more jobs to places like Teesside and and Blackpool that eventually will sort of filter through into health outcomes. But it sounds to me that you're saying that you need to have these other issues addressed as well, or possibly first, before you before you get to that. Well, I think it's a combination of both, but it isn't about import, importing jobs that then with uh, businesses and communities that won't invest long-term in those communities. We're not looking for wealth extraction models where actually people, you know, will build a big factory pay low wages and then but all their you know they're not paying the the correct rate of tax in the UK and their you know their their wealth their creation is not really benefiting the local economy 
So we don't want people to see uh, many of our northern towns and communities as a low wage economy. And and I do you know I do accept that there is a whole argument about economic growth, and we re- we really need to see that. But while we're where we are, people are driving themselves into debt because they're trying to keep up with that image of having stuff and maybe uh, rent it. They're in a you know insecure renting, and so they'll they'll borrow against um, to their maximum to get into a part share of a house which they'll never own because they'll actually be in debt all their lives and then they'll still not own it at the end of the process. So we're putting people under all kinds of pressure to actually conform to the model, which is success. And I I don't think that we're seeing at a scale of investment, which is genuine investment. We're seeing investment where, you know, we've got the free ports, we're seeing low-wage economies emerging in all kinds of ways. So we need to be really frank about the consequences for those very people that we're talking about here of some of the announcements about economic growth and economic impact. It isn't necessarily going to benefit people who are not that skilled at this stage. And by skills, we, you know, we're talking about producers, but we're also talking about then people who contribute to that community and recognizing the contribution that people make. So it isn't all about getting on a train and going somewhere else to actually earn a higher wage. We have got to reconstruct those communities. They're beautiful geographical places. They've got masses of arts and culture uh, to offer. They are places where they have so much potential that isn't just about industrialization of the offer. And I, I don't think there is there is enough investment in terms of the green spaces in those places, the tourist industry, the arts and the culture. I think there's a lot more that could be done to actually bring wealth in that lowercase w to to those places. Now, am I right thinking that your organisation is doing, uh, you've got a couple of events coming up that are sort of linked to these topics on health, health inequality. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, well... Um, I've got an organisation called the Alternative Provider Federation, which we set up just over a year ago, which is actually looking at and making the case that there is a very strong NHS delivery community out there that really is connected to these communities. And we are seeing, uh, you know, there's so much discussion about the NHS at the moment and it being under huge pressure, which, of course, it is. And we have seen a massive loss in workforce. But the many of the social businesses that I represent actually have got a really healthy workforce of people who are offering health interventions. Communities like those local services and the uptake is often really good. And at that point, people will disclose about either their anxieties or their um, their lack of take up of other things. So we're just very, uh, very positive about the fact that they're um, we're able to talk up and we're talking nationally now about how we can link up with other social businesses that provide NHS services. And then the other thing that's happening in the People's Powerhouse, we've got a racial justice event, which is happening on the 25th of this month. And again, we'll be looking at racial justice issues and we're focusing this first um, event on issues of uh, housing and racial issues. So, As we know, there's been a lot in the press about 
tenants being ignored when their needs were very, very important. So that's that's going to be a definite to sign in for if people are interested in that. Absolutely. Well, yeah, that's definitely one to keep an eye on. And um, we'll move on to a different topic uh, now. Edna. And I think one of the most uh, eye-catching pictures I've seen this week on the news is of the protester who got into the World Snooker Championships in Sheffield at the Crucible Theatre. He managed to get past security, jumped on one of the snooker tables and then covered it in a bright orange powder before being pulled away. Now, this was the work of an organisation called Just Stop Oil, who are environmentalists who want the government to halt oil, all oil and gas licences. And the, uh, the this protester, uh, a chap called Edred Whittingham, apparently glued his hand to a painting at the Manchester Art Gallery uh, last July to make uh, a similar point. Now, it's become quite political, as you would expect. In The Sun, uh, Rishi Sunak says, protesters who disrupt sporting events like the World Snooker Championships or the Grand National on on, uh, on Merseyside, which we saw over the weekend, should be ashamed of themselves. So it's almost become a bit of a culture war kind of topic. And I'm, I'm just interested in your view on disruptive protests in in general. Obviously, this has got a lot of headlines, but doing things like this, is, is, that, is it a valid way, in your view, of bringing attention to these political issues? Or should campaigns be a bit more mindful, I guess, of the spectators who've maybe saved up a lot of money to go and watch these sporting events which have been disrupted? Well, of course, people don't want their events disrupted when they've spent a lot of time planning it, looking forward to it, having a really nice time. And so, I mean, the answer to that is, of course, we don't want those things to happen. But I think if our tolerance of disruption then manifests itself into legislating against disruption. We're down a slippery slope, really. And so we've kind of got to reflect on, you know, how do people, how do people protest? Uh, How do people challenge the system when they feel there are things that are going wrong? How can people appeal against things when they think things are going wrong? So, we can see that so many processes are set up to actually silence people, to push them into the margins with their issue. And we've seen that, you know, over the COVID inquiry. I mean, how long has it taken for all those terrible, painful experiences to be shared and for us to understand what was going on? And, you know, it's a classic tool, isn't it? You know, well, we'll set up an inquiry or we'll move something into a committee to be looked at. So we have got a way of managing disruption. And and, and I do feel really empathetic to protesters who take direct action because I believe that they don't believe that they're being listened to in any other way. And if we were to hear some of those people talk, they'd say that they've tried it all kinds of ways. They can't go into shareholder meetings unless they're a shareholder of that company who might be doing something. So organisations do are really good at silencing people and not allowing disruption. And they invest in managing disruption, you know, security, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's, it is time for us to actually, 
Well, first of all, call out the media that they are overemphasizing the disruption and not the issue. So if we look at the issue, you know, how much media time is given to the actual issue that's being protested about, but actually it's more about the disruption. So it can be loads of camera footage on the motorway of cars standing in a line or, you know, quite rightly, these, these were very visual, weren't they, seeing this bright powder stuff and all the rest of it. But I'm not sure how many column inches were devoted to the issues that they were trying to raise. So you can argue then, well, it's not working, so they should really just go away. But blimey, what a world it would be if people weren't passionate and really forthright about things that they believe are, you know, are going very badly wrong. You know, I, I'm I'm all for protest. I just believe I don't want us to become intolerant of the principle. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess the the issue from the point of view of the people who are doing it is whether obviously they're raising awareness of the of the topic and you're right that there's that there's a lot of topics that don't get the media attention and there aren't the official forums to discuss them, but whether the way that they do the protests might alienate some of the people that they want to get on side and so the protests you think think of some particularly disruptive protests might ultimately be self-defeating in terms of getting people uh, to their cause. But I guess that's quite a hard thing to hard thing to measure, I suppose, isn't it? I think, I think you're right. And I think it could well be the case that that is the result in some cases. But then we've kind of, again, we've got to be looking at how we have forums to, to have these debates in public. I mean, just think about this summer, you know, and we're going to all be out with it, waving our flags and all the rest of it. The, if we want to organise getting people together in very positive ways. We're more than capable of doing that. There isn't enough time and energy put into getting people together to discuss things that are important to them. It's always done through managed processes. And because there's, you know, there's vested interests in the outcomes of all of this who are ensuring that the public, the lay voice, isn't really heard in all of this. So I agree that protesting in this dramatic way can be very alienating and it appears to be that, you know, lots of people get very cross about it. But I would say, you know, let's not let these issues die off so that we, we're all scared of protesting or indeed we get in trouble for protesting. Let's find out ways in which we can organise to get together to have proper debate about these very, very important issues. The last thing I'll, I'll ask you about, and just talking of, of Rishi Sunak, um, he outlined again this week why he wants everyone to study maths in some form until they're 18. It's not, not necessarily studying the subject at A-level, he was saying this week, but uh, he wants all school pupils in England to study some kind of maths until that age. He's going to have uh, a group of advisors who will examine the, the maths content taught in schools and consider whether a new maths qualification is necessary. And he was setting out all the reasons this week why he thinks that's the case. And I guess it comes back a little bit to what we were discussing earlier about how you help some people, a lot of them are in the the North, who uh, lack the the skills to get well-paid jobs. There are these skills gaps that we know exist in the north and you know there's the need to equip our young people with the skills they need to thrive is getting everyone to do maths a subject which a lot of people 
really didn't enjoy is that is is that is that the way to do this or should there be more flexibility uh for people to learn the skills that are maybe more appropriate for them or more appropriate for the type of work that they want to go into or that it would be good for them to go into what I'd, I'd be interested in your view on that i think we need to look at the curriculum in the round i do think it's you know it's it's overly simplistic to pick a particular area and say this is what everybody needs to gain a skill in because you know it, it is very basic i it terrified me at school absolutely terrified me and um i know lots of people and and subjects like that which are very where you need to concentrate a lot where you need you know a clear mind and you need to problem solve and you need to be able to be logical and so those are the requisites of of young people's minds where they're very together and they're relatively calm and they're in a very calm environment and they feel relatively confident about themselves that they can ask a question if they're stuck or they can show their vulnerability. Now, that's not the characterization of many, many children who actually go to school and are finding their environment, you know, a very positive place. However, they may well not have those emotional regulation at that point, and therefore other subjects are more, I'm not going to use the word fun, but they're actually more enriching for people, and they can... They, they need to converse with others. They need to, they need to use other methods, other ways of communicating. Maths is a subject where I think that, yes, more, absolutely more people need to be familiar with, you know, how to manage your finances, how to live your life in the best possible way. But I think it's shocking that there is no acknowledgement of how many other subjects have been reduced so dramatically in the curriculum. We in the Big Life Group uh, run two primary schools in North Manchester and the curriculum for our children is so limited to all the arts and cultures and wider joys of life because there is this trajectory that the only thing that matters is a job, money, a house and you'll be fine. But actually middle-class children will get all those softer things at the weekends. Their parents will pay for them. I've got two grandchildren who are on that many competence activities at the weekend. And I mean competencies. I don't mean joyous activities where they're learning other skills at the weekend, sporting or cultural. Um, But the school isn't offering a lot of that. And so are we really saying that this is – the priority of all priorities. Again, I, d- I don't think he understands the makeup that makes a person happy. I just don't think he gets it. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's, I, I know there's wider... It seems every week I hear someone saying the curriculum, national curriculum needs to be looked at because it's not reflecting, uh, you know, the skills that children need to uh, to thrive, you know, from a job point of view. But there's a totally fair point that, I guess that shouldn't be all that school uh, is is about. Like it, it, we, we want to equip our young people to be happy and not just have useful skills. It, it, it's it, school school has a lot a lot a lot to do, and it, it is, I guess there's only so much that can be squeezed into a into a seven or eight hour school day. 
No, but the point I'm making, Rob, is if a happy mind, you can then settle and you can relax and do well at maths. That's the point I'm making. It's not about just, it's not about being, you know, seeing happiness as some kind of flippant thing. But if you're emotionally grounded and you feel comfortable, you will do some problem solving. You will help to unpick challenges in your mind. But if you're not, if, if your life is too full of stress, mathematical problems are going to be almost impossible to deal with. So that's what I'm saying about a lack of understanding about how making children happy and relaxed will actually help them to do more, more difficult things in life. And that's, you know, that's evidenced, isn't it? Children who have got enrichment in a range of ways go on to be successful. And it's not just because they've been tutored and tutored and tutored and tutored in that subject. It's because they have the capacity uh, to be able to actually reach complex situations and deal with them. One for Rishi Sunak to consider there. Um, Edna Robinson, thank you so much for thank you so much for that. And we'll move on now to our guest for this week. So in two weeks from this podcast going out, the country will have just elected some 8,000 new local councillors and will know who's going to be in control of town halls from Liverpool to Leicester and from Middlesbrough to Milton Keynes. May's local elections are generally described from a national media standpoint as a litmus test of the popularity of our main party leaders which is understandable given that we could be just a year out from the next general election. But I think these kinds of sweeping generalisations overlook the fact that at a local level, the elections on May the 4th could make a massive difference to the political scene in towns, villages and cities across the north of England. We've got all kinds of different elections happening in our region, from mayoral races to town halls under no overall control, some led by Conservatives and others where Labour has a thumping majority. And of course, the backdrop is that for the first time, anyone going to the polls will have to show a form of ID to vote, a very controversial measure which some fear will disenfranchise vulnerable groups. We've got a great guest on today to pick out some of the election races in the North we ought to be looking out for, but also to give us the bigger picture. Jonathan Carwest is Chief Executive of the Local Government information unit think tank which has produced a great guide to the 2023 local elections which i would advise you to check out if you can so jonathan welcome to the podcast thank you thank you for having me it's great to be here thank you for coming on so we'll get on to the ones to watch in the north shortly but um the age-old question which I, i imagine you get asked a lot in terms of local elections is to what extent should we use them to judge whether rishi sunak or keir starmer is winning over voters and how much is it about local issues that are specific to the area? I mean, in terms of this year's locals, I mean, maybe the extent to which this is true sort of varies depending on the year. But what's your view? What's your view on that? In brief, we shouldn't. We shouldn't try and use them um, to to judge the state of national politics. And and there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, The first, as you say, is that these are local elections. They are about real substantive things. They're not, a, they're not an opinion poll. They're about choosing the men and women who are going to make some very tough choices about local public services, about adult social care, about high street regeneration, about housing. You know, so there are real bread and butter issues at stake. You know, many of the things that, that actually we care most about in our day-to-day lives, you know, who's going to look after our elderly relatives? You know, are there going to be 
school places and jobs and homes for our children. Yeah, is my is my neighbourhood a pleasant place to live? These are all done by by people in the town hall, not people in Whitehall. So the people that we will be electing uh, in May will be making those choices, and they'll be making them, you know, in the backdrop of a really challenging financial situation where we know that, you know, more than half of councils are having to cut spending. All councils, 90% of them are putting up council tax by the maximum they can. More than half are dipping into their reserves year after year. So it's a very challenging situation with some tough choices to be made. And the people we elect in May will be making those choices. So these elections matter. The other reason why you shouldn't use it as a, as a sort of litmus test for national politics is that, that that just doesn't work. You know, if you think back to when these, these seats were, were last contested in 2019, Right. That the Conservatives did very, very badly. That was at a time when you know, we were in the, the dying days of the Theresa May administration, you had parliamentary deadlock over Brexit. The Conservatives lost more than 1,300 um, council seats. They lost control of 44 councils. So they did really, really badly. That's the base they're going from. So actually, to do really badly, reports in the press yesterday, they're managing expectations, oh, they could lose up to 1,000 seats. To go any further down from here, would be astonishingly bad. So it's not actually clear that you're going to have a very clear picture of, of what goes on from these elections because the Conservatives are starting at such a low base. On the other, on the other side of the equation, you know, what would count as good for Labour? You know, everyone expects them to do really well, but you know, these elections don't particularly favour them. So it's going to be very hard, I think, to see any really clear um, messages from, from these elections. And remember... 2019, the Conservatives did really, really badly in these elections. A few months later, change of leader, they got a thumping majority at a general. So it doesn't really tell you much. Go back to 2017, Theresa May did really, really well in the local elections. She said, great, let's call a general. Six weeks later, she did, you know, she lost her majority. So, you know, we shouldn't treat local elections as a sort of glorified opinion poll because they're real and they matter. But actually, even if we try to, it's not really that good a guide for what's going to happen in a general election. As well as the bigger picture, there's a great section in your uh, in your guide on your website about the local elections to watch in Northern England, the part of the world we're particularly interested in. And there's a real mixture of different types of council with seats up for up for grabs. I mean, we featured this in our in our Northern Agenda newsletter a few days ago. Some of the the, the, the ones that you picked out, but could you just sort of uh, highlight? some of the more interesting ones that you think might make waves nationally that are happening in, in Northern England? Yeah. I mean, as you say, there's a huge variety. You, you also have, if I might say so, some, some of the least interesting ones on, on, that, on that basis, because you've got places like sort of Manchester that are just have massive majorities and have no chance of, uh, of changing. Uh, but look, you, you, do have, you do have places like, I think Middlesbrough is really going to be one to watch, where you've got a mayoral race as well. Um, big gap, you know, Labour had always been there or thereabouts in the mayoral races in Middlesbrough, but the the, the independent um, Andy Preston opened up a big gap in 2019. So Labour will be, I don't think they'll be that optimistic of bringing that back, but they'll be looking to get closer. They only need a few seats, though, to win control of the council, uh, which is which is in no overall control, but they're only a few seats off. That would be a big deal because, again, Labour Labour had controlled that council since, I think, the, the 1970s, and they lost control of it in 2019. So it's a, it's a pretty emblematic kind of seat for 
for a lot of the kind of so-called red wall um, seats across the north. So watch Middlesbrough. That you know, despite me saying that it doesn't tell you much about what's going on nationally, that would be one that that would be quite interesting. Hartlepool um, is another um, no overall control council big battleground between Labour and Conservatives. You've only got um, a third of the seats up for grabs there, but conceivably either Labour or the Tories could, could win there. So they'll both be they'll both be looking to gain. They'll be looking to gain from independence. I think there's a big question, by the way. You know, the mayor of Middlesbrough is an independent. You've got a lot of independents in places like Hartlepool. Four years ago, they did well, and that, that helped to sort of create vacuums where where neither of the main parties had overall control. It will be interesting as politics has continued to polarise and tighten up and, you know, given the sort of disruptions of the last 12 months, do those independent candidates still have a sort of an allure? People still thinking, well, a plague on all their houses will vote for the, the independents. Or are we going to see people sort of returning back to the main parties thinking, look, times are pretty tough we need, you know, we need to go back to the safety of the of the big players. That could, you know, that could make it make a huge difference. Um, where else would be interesting? I think Stockton, Stockton on Tees, you could see a big power shift. Um, again, Labour had controlled that for donkey's years and lost lost overall control in twenty nineteen. Um, only need a handful of seats to get their majority back. So you know that's that's not outside the realm of possibility. Uh, in the northwest, you know, as I said, you've got very, very safe places uh, like Manchester City Council, um, but you've also got some places that could shift. You know, there's minority Labour administrations in a, in a lot of in West Lancashire, in Blackpool, in the Wirral. You know, again, just a handful of seats would see Labour sort of consolidating their hold of that, and I think you know they're really going to be looking to do that because. I think given where these elections are and the sort of low base the Conservatives are starting at, it's going to be quite hard for Labour to show any really spectacular gains. There are there are a few kind of iconic places like like Harleypool, yeah, in the south you might be looking at Swindon or for example. But I th- I think it's gonna be yeah, there's not gonna be this sort of massive tidal wave. So it's gonna be about places where they don't quite have control actually consolidating control. Um that's I think the the, the sort of thing to look for. And of course that also makes a difference in terms of local politics because you that means that labor administrations in those places will have slightly more freedom to make bold choices because they'll no longer be trying to sort of balance um coalitions of uh, of different people so you know it sounds like a really kind of geeky sort of political wonk thing to say oh well you know you could go from noc to majority control in these places with a handful of seats but actually that could be you know if if you live in in west lancashire or in the wirral or in blackpool that that matters um you know lib dems are in a similar position in stop it matters you know because suddenly you could have majority control where people are able to sort of make slightly bolder decisions about how they cope with some of those really really um challenging problems that are coming down the track that's really interesting it's, it's interesting that you point out manchester as somewhere that uh, is perhaps one of the least interesting uh, areas because of how dominant labor is because you, you could say and, and the fact that you know that dominance allows manchester council to make uh you know the labor group on manchester council to make perhaps bolder decisions because you could argue that of anywhere in the north you know manchester is the place that is the most successful economically at the moment. I wonder whether the two the two things are, are, are interlinked. 
let me be really clear. I'm not. I'm not suggesting Manchester is not an interesting place. <laughs> I just within very narrow. But in terms I understand of, what you mean. The sort of uh, excitement of elect of election night. It's not that interesting because Labour has 91 out of 96 seats. You're right. You know, there's a really interesting question about what happens where you have. You know, the, the truth is, a lot of this country you have a sort of fairly one party state in terms of local government. You know, Manchester's not going to be a Tory council anytime soon. Um, I don't know, Surrey is unlikely to be a Labour council anytime soon. What happens when you have that sort of control? Two things can happen. You can, you can, it can set the platform for really bold, imaginative policymaking. And I think you're right that Manchester is a really good example of that. Going back 20 years, right? You've just seen that in Manchester, you also had you know, a, a single administration. You know, it was Richard Lees and Howard Bernstein who were sort of hand in hand for 20 years, did some amazing things because they had that longevity, because they were able to, to create that kind of long-term strategic vision. And, and, and you know, Manchester has carried on with that. You do also see some places where that sort of level of control leads to a bit of complacency and, 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 and the opposite happens. And people sort of think, well, we never have to worry about anyone voting for anyone else, so we'll just kind of drift along. It, it's actually really interesting. I've never really been able to put my finger on, on what, what accounts for that difference. Why do some places who have that sort of strength of, of, of control do amazing strategic things and other places not so much? It's a... It's one of the sort of mysteries for me of, of of local election politics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could you could perhaps point to Liverpool as an example of a place where you could equally describe that as a Labour stronghold. But uh, in in recent years, the city council has been in disarray. They've had the government commissioners called in, and this scathing report about the way it's run. And now, obviously, as a result of that, the council is having to hold all out elections and it's you know looked quite quite uh, hard to predict exactly how that's going to going to work out the other thing i thought was interesting was that of the races that you or the elections that you point out as being ones to watch quite a few of them are on teesside and all, all the councils there are technically no overall control aren't they so a few seats either way could tip the balance and obviously teesside has um as a uh, he, he's not up for election this year, but the uh, the Metro Mayor Ben Houchen, the only Conservative Metro Mayor in the north of England, who uh, ha- we've had him on the podcast before, and he has said that if levelling up isn't seen as a success on Teesside, where he uh, operates, you could argue that it can't really be seen as a success anywhere because it's on Teesside where you have the most tangible uh, sort of signs of levelling up in action, such as such as they are. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that whatever happens in Teesside, if if a few councils go for no overall, overall control to a, a slim Labour majority, that's going to be seized upon by people who will say that, you know, that the electorate has lost faith in the Conservatives' ability to level up red wall seats like Middlesbrough and Hartlepool, which, like as you say, were some of the areas that Labour lost to the Tories in the 2019 general election. I think people, well, I mean, people will certainly read it that way. You know, I guess I go, I go back to my sort of first point that it it is very difficult to sort of predict out from one set of local elections to what might, you know, so I don't know, Ben, ben Houchen's not up for re-election until 2025, I think. Um, that's a long way away. 
Yeah, so a lot, a lot can happen. That's the other side of a general of a of a UK general election. You know that will that will alter the dynamics. Um, but yeah, it is certainly it is certainly a straw in the wind, isn't it? Yeah, if we see if we see Labour, yeah, the Labour vote coming back out in places uh, like Teesside, um, that you know, Labour strategists will be very pleased to see that. I, I mean, you might put it the other way that if if we don't, you know, they will, they will be relieved to see it because if if you know given the kind of co- a cost of living crisis given labor's position in the polls if we don't see signs of a labor sort of resurgence in in council seats like that at this sort of point a year out from a from a general election that would be that would be very worrying so i think in some ways you might feel slightly more comfortable if you were ben houcham than if you were labor group leaders in 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 those in those areas because you know they've got in some ways. Uh, this sounds paradoxical, but they've almost got more to lose in this set of elections. Yeah, that's a good point. And just a couple of general general points. I mentioned earlier this is the first time voter compulsory voter ID has been used in elections, and it's been very controversial. This and obviously people who don't have the right documents to vote can apply for a special certificate. You know, t- uh, thousands of people have done that, but there are still concerns, aren't there, about widespread disenfranchisement i mean how concerned are you about that very very i think it's it, you know it is a big problem it's true as you say thousands of people have applied for those certificates but you know hundreds of thousands of people haven't um i i haven't looked for for a week or so the government has actually i mean you know, to give them credit they have produced this really good dash online dashboard where you can literally see day by day how many people are, are applying um for those those voter authority certificates but it you know it's pretty low numbers compared to the number of people who don't have um, the right ID. We're anticipating, and you know, the, the, the Electoral Commission anticipates that there's going to be a surge in those applications as we get towards the deadline. But I think it is almost inevitable that we are going to see a lot of people turned away um, because, you know, we've just done some research on this. Yeah. Just over, you know, people ha- just over half of people are aware of these new rules. So that's quite a lot who aren't. Um, a lot of people don't routinely carry ID. Yeah, so I think you'll have even a lot of people who, you know, a lot of the conversation has focused on, you know, whether people have this ID. And and there are real concerns about that. You know, there there are disparities between the sort of, you know, that you can use your senior senior rail card, but you can't use your junior rail card. You know, there's some real questions there. But I think there's also a question that's been less talked about, a couple of things that have been less talked about. Firstly, people who possess ID but aren't aware that they need it. You turn up at the vote at the, at the polling station, sorry, you haven't got any ID. Uh, okay, yeah, go home, get your passport. Are people actually going to do that? You know, it depends how motivated you are. I mean, so I, it could have a bigger impact on, on turnout, potentially. I think it could because I think you, you will find there are a lot of people who, you know, voter turnout is, is poor in local elections. It's only sort of 30%. There's a degree of softness to that. A lot of people, well, I'm passing the polling station on the way home from work. I'll drop in and and cast my vote. Oh, you need to go home and get your passport. You know what? I'm not going to do that. I'll just go home. Um, So I think it will will affect turnout. I think there's also an issue that hasn't been talked about enough about the, the challenge for polling station staff, right? We are now asking to turn people away and not allow them to vote in a way that we have never asked them to do before. They're going to have a lot of angry people, a lot of disappointed people. Um, that's going to be very challenging for them, I think. You know, they have, and there's been no sort of systematic program to sort of equip them for that. Councils have been sort of struggling to provide training, and but it, you know, it could be, 
one can imagine situations in which it all gets really quite quite unpleasant and quite nasty um you know what's the impact of that on our electoral system you know we're yeah we're very very concerned about it it's a big unknown isn't it um the so the final um question which you kind of alluded to a bit earlier just about the i said the importance of these elections and i guess local democracy itself so as as you mentioned in recent years councils have had their budget slashed to such an extent that all they can do or they can't do much more than provide adults and children's social care uh, because they don't really have the money or powers to do a huge amount else and at the same time central government is making them bid against each other for funding for things that they used to be able to pay for themselves with that being the case does it really matter who's running these town halls if if all they're doing is sort of uh, trying to meet the demand for adult social social services or children's social services which is the main thing that councils are, are doing these days Yes, it matters even more. It matters more than ever, I would argue, because precisely because there are going to be really hard choices involved in that. You know, so you've you've got, as I said earlier, you know, more than half of councils are, are cutting spending. They're dipping into reserves. Um, they're cutting spending on 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 a range on a whole range of of services. Everything from you know business support to leisure to to parks. You know, so that they can continue to put the money into into adult adult social care but they still don't have enough money to so even there there's choices about eligibility there's choices about how you know how you deliver that social care do you have outcome-based commissioning do you do it by the hour what yeah so there's there's a whole set of questions in terms of if you're going to have to cut stuff who decides what what goes how are you going to communicate that with the public how are you going to engage um you, you know a a community conversation about us sort of being in that together because for citizens, right? For citizens, what you're going to see is a triple whammy where you're going to pay more council tax. You're going to get less services for it. And at the same time, it's not that your council will then become financially secure. Your council will still move closer and closer to, to bankruptcy. So triple whammy for, for all of us as, as, as citizens, the choices involved in that, what's cut, what's not, what's protected, what's left, how do we communicate around that? How do we provide, you know, what's the systematic way of providing that adult social care that takes up 80, or the social care adult and children's that takes up 80% of the budget? Those, there are choices about that. You can do that in different ways. And and all of those choices, and I think people don't always realise this, because you know, they see the council as a sort of grey bureaucracy, but all of those choices, in the end, are made by elected councillors. They are the only people who have the kind of legal, uh, the legal status to decide how and where the council spends money and what it does. All those decisions come back to elected members. So, actually, the tougher things get, the tighter things get, the more difficult things get for the council and for us as communities. I think that makes it more important than ever that we make mindful choices about who we want making those. The, those decisions so you, you know i what i always say at this time of year is you know well, just whatever you do just do vote in your local election it's not an opinion poll it's not just about you know whether you think rishi sunak or keir starmer should be should be prime minister it's about bread and butter life and death issues in your community and who makes those decisions jonathan carl west thank you so much anytime Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. 
The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.